Listener supported. WNYC Studios. So, Kathy. Tobin. Before we get started with today's episode, mm-hmm. we have a quick visit from a very special guest. So special. Radiolab host and producer, Molly Webster. Hello, hello, Hi, hello. Molly. Hi. Welcome to the studio. Thank you. I'm doing a shoulder Hi, dance. Yes, you are. It's a little <laughs> shimmy. <laughs> okay, I have two questions right off the bat. Yes. Number one, what is this series, Gonads? About? Yeah. It's a, it's a series that looks at how humans make more of themselves, but it dives back to sort of these developmental moments that set us on the pathway to be either egg makers or sperm makers. Hmm. It's like a magic school bus style journey that'll have some biology and some humans and some fish. Fish. Which are also biology, but they feel different <laughs> than just the word. Second question, what is a gonad? <gasps> a gonad is testes and ovaries. Reproductive gear. They're reproductive parts that come in pairs. Someone said to me on the phone, gonads are magical organs. (laughs) (laughs) And once that happened, I thought, I'm going to go stand there. What is that about? I didn't even know gonads was a science term. Hmm. You thought it was was a slang term. I just thought it was a slang term for balls. I'm just curious, like, how did you get interested? Like, what drove you into this series? So there's so much happening in science right now, like with technology and just research that's reframing how we understand, like how we make more of ourselves. You want to be in the place where something is being reframed, like Mm. as you go, Mm. right? And so much of the science that we've looked into, especially in the episodes that are coming up about how your body commits to, you know, being egg or sperm, so much of that science is new. We found that, like, while we were reporting, a lot, actually, a lot of the most interesting answers were the I don't knows because they're just right at the edge of, of science. How can people listen to the series? Go now. Go now. Go now. Go it's all on the Radiolab feed, so you can get it wherever you get podcasts, uh, or you can just go to the Radiolab website. Molly Webster, thank you for stopping by. We love you. Kathy, too, thank you. I don't get a thank you. I figured we'd do it personally, (laughs) one-on-one. I thought we were going to look into each other's eyes and do deep personal messages. I didn't want to lump everyone together. Well, I appreciate it. We come as a package, though. All right, all right. On to the show. Tobin, the first musical I ever saw was Wicked. Oh. Love Wicked, still love Wicked. It's a nice soft entrance into the musical world. Yeah, I saw it with my good friend Cece, who lives in New York now. And uh, when we got to intermission, (laughs) which I thought was halftime, I thought it was over. She sang a big song, the lights came up, people got out of their seats. (laughs) I thought it was the end of the musical because, you know, musicals are strange. That makes no sense. In the plot of that musical, that would be the most unsatisfying ending. She becomes the evil person. (laughs) Is that not the end? You just thought it was a dark musical. (laughs) She's evil. That's it. Everyone go home. Yeah. Well, at least now you know that there is a second half. So, funny story, mm-hmm. I went last year with superstar producer Matt Collette okay. to Groundhog Day, the musical, and at intermission, I again thought it was over. No, wait, I've also seen that musical, and if it had ended there, the story would have just been, guy gets stuck in perpetuity and never gets out. You know, at least I didn't call it halftime. <laughs> From WNYC Studios, this is Nancy. With your host, Kathy Tu and Tobin Lowe. 
Kath. Tobe. As long as we're talking about Broadway, Ugh. okay? Yeah. <laughs> this is a great segue to talk about one of my favorite Broadway stars, Alan Cumming. I know him from Spy Kids. Okay. X-Men, X-Men. No, yes, he is in those movies. That's totally fair. <laughs> but I know him and love him best for his starring role in a musical called Cabaret. Welcome, bienvenue. Welcome. He won a Tony Award for playing the role of the MC in that musical, and I got a chance to see him perform it a couple years ago. It was incredible. He played this really, like, body character that serves as a larger-than-life master of ceremonies. But outside of Cabaret the Musical, he also performs solo cabarets, which are these really intimate one-man shows where he tells stories and sings songs. And he's about to perform one of them at Cafe Carlisle and Joe's Pub in Manhattan, which is where I got to meet up with him. Yeah, we're in a kind of rather drab dressing room. It's a little damp. <laughs> is it damp? Yeah. Like smelly of damp? No, no, I think the humidity is Oh, like, humidity. Those yeah. flowers look like they've seen better days. <laughs> This new show is all about his experience as a Scotsman who became an American citizen 10 years ago. He also talks a lot about what's going on with the Trump administration. A little side note, we recorded this conversation a couple weeks ago before the situation at the border escalated. Anyway, his show is a commentary on America's attitudes about immigrants, even down to the title. It's called Legal Immigrant. I mean, you've got to have a snappy title. We're so used to hearing the word illegal in front of immigrant, and we're so used to having a connotation of something negative. When we hear stuff about immigration or refugees or just people who are different to us. So I called my show Legal Immigrant to make people go, what, wait, is that, it shouldn't be illegal, you know? And to actually draw attention to the fact that it doesn't really matter what your prefix is anymore. The very notion of immigration itself has this negative connotation. And, and I think the irony of a country that is built by immigrants, it's like historical revisionism happening right in front of us. Part of the art of cabaret is that you doing it's almost like hosting a dinner party, I feel like. Like you mm. you create an environment, you tell stories, you sing the songs you love. So I'm wondering, like with this show, what environment are you trying to create? It's, it's interesting you say that it's about like a dinner, because it's also got a structure as well. Like a you know, you take the audience through a, a structure and you have to kind of end it. Isn't it? So I guess the environment I'm trying to create is, is what I always would. I mean, to use the food metaphor, uh, like a sort of smorgasbord, I want people to laugh. I tell funny stories and, you know, I'm quite funny. And I sing a couple of funny songs, but also to cry. It's really moving. There's a song I sing in this show called Caledonia about Scotland. I've never got through it without crying. Mm. And it's so ridiculous. It's about, I talk about being Scottish and I talk about, you know, and then I sing this song. And I just can't get through it. But the thing I'm trying to create would be this I think Cabaret the Form is so exciting because of its ability to change on a sixpence. Right. Both the genres and the, the styles of song, but also the emotion. You can be laughing one minute and then literally crying or, or talking about politics one minute and then talking about, you know, my testicles, which there's a lot of mentions of my testicles in this show. <laughs> so that's, that's what I want to <laughs> create. Yeah. Well, I wanted to talk about Caledonia, actually. I thought you were going to see my testicles. <laughs> We can talk about that, too, sure in a minute. <laughs> but, you know, there's this theme in the show about immigration and becoming mm. an American citizen. And that song, Caledonia, it, it's a song about being homesick for yeah. Scotland. And when I think about, you know, this narrative around becoming an American citizen, a, a lot of it is about, like, being really proud to be an American or, like, really proud to be here. 
And that doesn't leave as much room for talking about how you miss home or yeah. how you can be homesick. Yeah. I wonder if you think about that. Oh, I do. That's why I put that song in, really. I mean, I talk a lot about why I became a citizen, how it feels to be an immigrant to this country in the present time when the rhetoric about immigration is so negative. And I, I, anyway, that's what the whole show is about. I talk very much as well, though, about how I'm very proud to be a, an American. I want America to regain some of the things that I was so excited about. Um, but also, I'm always going to be Scottish first. And I'm, I, actually living in America, rather interestingly, being away from Scotland more than I've actually lived there, has made me understand more about what it is about me that makes me Scottish. What are the qualities in me that are that were given to me from my country? Mm. And also the very fact that I'm able to be the person I am and that to be doing the job I am doing is due to the fact that I was lucky enough to be living in Scotland, or be born in Scotland, and for, to, be, to get a free education and to be work in the subsidised theatre. Otherwise, I would never have been able to. If I was born in America, my parents would never have been able to afford to send me to a drama school or anything. Mm. So there's, you know, I talk about that a lot. Well, are there lyrics in it that feel particularly meaningful to you? Yes, but I'll cry if I say them. That's the thing. Mm. It's, it's all about, no, I can't. I'm going to cry. I will. <laughs> what is it about, the, about it that gets you so emotional? Oh, um, there's a line, Caledonia has been everything I've ever had. So this idea that, like I said, about, I feel like Scotland has given me so much. Uh, and, and also, you know, one of the things it's given me is, is over-sentimentality about things like my country and my people. Um, and so I just like that. I like, I think sentiment is a much maligned thing. Um, and it's, you know, by definition, not necessarily a bad thing. And I think we've got a good balance of it in Scotland. Mm. We'd actually, you know, and I think the Celts in general are, you know, we cry a lot. So I, I always joke that, you know, drinking and over-sentimentality are the two favourite pastimes in Scotland. And I'm usually doing both of an evening. <laughs> Do you have a favourite story that you tell on the show? There's a whole sequence about ageing and uh, testicles and things like that. What about ageing and testicles? Well, just about how... I went to the dermatologist a few years ago and I had <laughs> I had um, two little dots. It was as though someone had a red Sharpie and done two little boop, boop on one of my testicles. And I was just sort of had a look down there. And I thought, oh, that's weird. I wonder what that is. So I said to the dermatologist, these little dots have appeared. Are they, you know, and I suddenly thought, maybe someone did put, you know, <laughs> did a Sharpie down there. I just noticed. And he had a look and he went, oh, that's nothing to worry about, Alan. That's just a normal part of scrotal aging. And I was like, what the fuck did you just say? And it's a thing, apparently. Scrotal aging is a medical thing. So anyway, I talk about how over the years I've noticed a distinct change in, with gravity. And once I was in a Roman bath in Budapest when I was making a film there, and I went to this amazing Roman bath place, the Gellert Bath, and I was oh, it was amazing. You know, you go down these steps into these pools and it's all these beautiful frescoes. And at the showers afterwards, I saw this old man, but I was like early 30s and was in a phase of not wearing underpants and just feeling all very free and, you know, la, la, la. And, and I saw this man with literally his balls at his knees. I've never seen anything like it. I was just, it was a game changer. I just, I remember <laughs> just like standing there paralyzed with just realization and fear. And I left those Roman baths and went straight and bought a jockstrap. And I have been hiking my balls up ever since. So you did have that immediate connection of not just being horrified, but like, that's the that's future. I, I, that's my, there's me. Those are my balls if I don't get my shit together. Yeah. But you got to keep yeah, them high and tight. You totally do. Just support them. <laughs> yeah. And then my doctor told me that he wanted, someone on a patient visit wanted to have Botox in his balls. Is that a thing? It's a thing. And guess what it's called? Scrotox. Scrotox. <laughs> it is. <laughs> <laughs> 
Like, I know a lot of gay guys love the big ball thing. Like, they love mm-hmm. big, you know, it's sort of like... And so this man wanted to have bigger balls, hanging out balls. So he got scrotic so that your... Um, I mean, Botox rather uh, relaxes your muscles. Yeah. So that's why you don't get, um, uh, you know, wrinkles. And so with your balls, it just means they dangle because they're not being held up by the, by the muscles. Why would you want that? Well, I, because I think if you... I think, you know, if you want to make a feature... Yeah. Of them. And but I was like saying, you know, I don't know why you're bothering to pay the money for Scrotox. Just wait a couple of years. It's going to happen. But, <laughs> it happens naturally. <laughs> it happens naturally, believe me. But uh, I think actually it's the thing that, you know, people are, that's the thing. People love big balls. Some people. Do they really? Oh, yeah. Don't you know? Don't you think? That, you know, sometimes you see like, you know, big balls, dangly balls as a sort of thing on people's um, apps, you know, this grinder mm. and stuff. I just have never paid that much attention to them, I feel like. What? There are, well, like... It's not the main feature for me. Me neither. No, no. But you notice them. Well, you're down there. You know, I mean, it's definitely a thing. I don't know. Um, they're more in vogue right now. Yeah. Balls. <laughs> they're having a moment. Having a moment. We're in the moment this of This is balls. the age of balls. The New York Times is going to write a trend piece any second. <laughs> I know. The year of balls. That's right. It'll be the front page. <laughs> oh, this is not where I thought we were going, but I'm mm. so delighted that we did. I can't believe you're not interested in balls. I mean, not interested, but that you've never sort of considered balls. Well, it's interesting to hear you talk about it because, and you touched on this a little bit, but I also think it's a thing that queer men are incredibly bad at talking about. Balls. Uh, aging. Like aging. anything to do with oh, aging. Totally. Oh, they're, they're terrified of it, yeah. Yeah. I talk about it. <laughs> I mean, when I, after that dermatologist thing, I tweeted immediately about scrotal aging. I think queer culture is really, uh, you know, gained by sexual men anyway. It's fascinating in that it's very youth and body conscious and very, you know, people talk about their summer bodies and everything like this. And it's very gym culture. I mean, it's less so now. And I, you know, because I remember when I first came here in the late 90s, you know, it was all muscle uh, and, and everyone was shaved. And so it's nice that people are hairy now and there's different bodies and things like that. But it is very much a culture that's obsessed with youth and with strength, you know, or, or a show of strength. I once, years and years ago, had sex with this big muscle boy. And I thought, oh, this is going to be great. And he was so weak because basically all his muscles <laughs> were just for vanity. show. Yes, yeah. I could hold him down. Um, but at the same time as that, I think interestingly now, as a, and as an older man myself, the older people are more engaged in the sort of sexual, what's the word, zeitgeist than they used to be, I think, because there's this whole thing about daddies. And so I think aging as a gay or bisexual man before it would be in your mid-30s, you kind of just are put out to pasture. Um, now I think it's an interesting time because actually young people are not closed off to uh, older men. You know, you're deeply associated with this role of the MC in uh-huh. Cabaret. You did it for several long times. runs. Yeah. yeah. And there's something about that role that's so like eccentric and like very sexually open. Um, and I imagine that would lead people to assume a lot of things about you. The thing I think that most people assume that I don't like is that I, there's a, that there would be a meanness to me. I think people, especially in America, associate sexually free people with kind of meanness. Mm. To be sexy, you somehow got to be mean. And and um, I, I get lots and lots of people sending me things on Instagram or Twitter when they're doing cabaret schools and colleges and everything. And they send me pictures of themselves. And a lot of the time I see them being sexy, but with there's a kind of a sneer to it. And that's what I don't do and I didn't do in cabaret. And I think that's what was different and shocking and mysterious for people and curious. But I think that's something that people sometimes assume that because I'm quite like that in my life, I want to deride people and I never, ever do that. Yeah. 
Do you remember the first time you realized you could sing? No, no, because I actually didn't really come to singing till much, much later. I mean, I know I can hold a tune everything, but like the idea of me having a show where I'm singing, like I'm Alan Cumming, come and hear me sing. That's taken a long time for me to be comfortable with that. That did not happen until very recently. But I sang in a, I, I first sang in a stand-up comedy double act. My friend Forbes Masson in, in, in Scotland, when we were at drama school, we made up this thing called Victor and Barry and sort of a character comedy thing. And we would sing in that. We wrote these songs and sang. And so, and they were, they were great songs, and, but they were sort of meant to be funny. Mm. So it, it sort of didn't really count as much right. in my view. And, and then I, you know, would sing in some plays. And then I did cabaret and of course I sang a lot in that. But I never really thought of myself as a singer until much, and really the, until I did, in 2009, I did a concert for the first time at the Lincoln Center American Songbook thing. But I was just so scared of it. The idea of me singing as me was very difficult for me to come to terms with. That's, that's surprising to me to hear because 2009, you would have already done your, at least your first run in cabaret, right? I did my first run in cabaret. I'd done the Three Penny Opera on Broadway. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. I'd done some movies where I'd done musicals. You know, I'm, it's not logical. But actually, when there's a difference between when you're performing as a character. I'm not singing as myself. I don't sound like, when I sing, I sound like this. I sing in my own voice and it's a very different thing. And also it's just the idea of not being a character, removing the veil that is between you and the audience is a huge thing to do. And and I thought if I'm going to do that, I really want it. I want to be personal and authentic. I mean, I love people who are Broadway people and do their concerts and everything that, but that's not me. I've never had a voice like that. I've never wanted to sound that way. Yeah. And I, I just don't, I couldn't even if I tried. People are never going to come to see me because of the mellifluous tones of my voice. They're going to come to hear me sing because I interpret songs. So, so I think by necessity, there has to be more at stake because of that. You have to be more prepared to be vulnerable. And so that was took me a long time to be prepared to do that. Alan Cumming, thank you so much for talking to me, for making the time. Thank this you. This was so fun. I had lots of fun, yes. It's so great. Thank you very much. Caledonia's in everything I've ever If you're in New York, you can catch Alan Cummings' cabaret Legal Immigrant at Cafe Carlisle and Joe's Pub from June 26th to the 30th. Nancy will be back in a minute. And we're back. So one of the things we love hearing about is where queer people all over the country gather. Mm-hmm. So like in choirs and clubs and bagel brunches. By the way, have you managed to work your way into that like bagel brunch gaggle? Sort of. We are in a texting group. Oh. Anyway, yes. I was talking about this with our pal, Lewis Wallace. Oh, Lewis is so great. He did that beautiful story about his grandmother. He did. And he was like, I've got another story for you. A very different story about a place that he discovered. So I grew up going to Columbia, South Carolina, pretty much every summer because that's where my mom is from. And so, of course, at a certain age, I started looking for the gay people. Uh, and like, I mean, how do you find gay people? I googled gay bar Columbia, South Carolina. <laughs> One place kept coming up. It was called PT's 1109, one address, 1109 Assembly Street. And I would go there to 1109 Assembly Street, and I didn't see anything. No Hmm. rainbow flags, no nothing. 
And I did that a few times, like on a couple different occasions. Google gave our one to address, nothing there. <laughs> and 1109 Assembly, I should tell you, is like right across the street from the state capitol, which is this very conservative uh, state assembly known for that in South Carolina. Um, so then I'm at this wedding. It was actually my mom's wedding, but that's a whole other story. So I'm at a <laughs> wedding, and I, <laughs> I met a guy on the dance floor who was like, oh, I can tell you how to get to PT's 1109. And I'm like, yeah, I've, I've tried to find it. I can't find it. And he gives me instructions. He says, okay, no, 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 you can't. There's nothing in the front. You have to look for this sushi place, go around the back to the parking lot, go up these wooden steps to a door with a red light above it. And then you will encounter a unicorn who will ask you three <laughs> questions. And if you answer two of them correctly... This sounds more right, like, or like a brothel. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say. Okay. The red light. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, so what does it look like when you walk in? Um, it's totally magical. It's also just like a regular gay bar in kind of in the way that small town gay bars are, even though Columbia is not really a small town. Um, you know, a stage at the front, a long bar, pool tables, there's gay men, there's lesbians, there's trans folks. Like everybody's there, uh, all ages, you know, that kind of spot, which I love. And that's where I meet Pat. And Pat is like a eh, kind of regular looking white guy, a theater professor at a local college. And he's the force behind one of South Carolina's longest running drag shows, 18 years. Um, right now, I am Pat Patterson, but with a little help from makeup, I will transform into Miss Patty O Furniture, the Carolina's queen of cocktails and comedy. Someone once told me that I look like the illegitimate love child of Kathy Griffin and Bozo. Oh. So I'll take that. I can live with that. Can you describe your outfit? Glamorous, gorgeous, sickening for the gods, lovely. Oh, you mean this little thing? Just a simple red velvet dress. The show's about to begin. Good evening, boys and girls, and welcome out to PT's 1109. If it's Tuesday night, it's Columbia's ultimate free drag show, and we've got lots of fun ladies in the back. The very first time I came in here, you had to sign in, and we all signed in under fake names because we didn't want anybody to know we were here because we were going to, it was, it was the cruisy bar. Let's please give it up for the one and only yard sale with legs, Miss Patio Furniture! Originally, it was a darker, more traditional male clientele, and now in our audience broadened to a much more diverse audience, men and women, gay and straight, and everything in between. Y'all know that one of my things I love to remind people about is practicing safer sex. And so, we have a little game I want to play, and I know that both of you boys know about safer sex. Do you have any children? Have you impregnated a woman? Thank God, neither have I. I'm sure they're vagina lovely. Vagina is not bad. I'm sure vaginas are lovely, but it's like Idaho. I don't want to go there. So. Several years ago, some st students at USC did a short film about me and how I come from a political background here in the state. My grandfather and my mother are both elected officials. Um, that I was a professor, that I donated money to charity, and also that I'm a camp queen, a comedy queen and somehow it wound up in the paper. And my parents, hometown paper, I get a call from my mom and she says, we need to talk. What about? 
I was in the grocery store and Miss So-and-so from church came up to me and said, oh, you must be so proud of Pat. Because the article referenced the fundraising that I do and it also referenced mom and her political career. Well, my mom said she didn't know how to respond and that she thinks we might need to go to family counseling to talk about it. My mom thought that it was a gender identity issue. She thought that this was me wanting to become a woman. And I was like, nah, mom, I've always played dress up. But we went to family counseling and I had to come out to my parents um, as a drag queen. And we're sitting in the counseling session and my dad's sort of like, yeah, whatever. And the counselor looks at my mom and realizes as we got to the end of the first session, she says, so I guess we'll um, maybe look at, you know, speaking directly to my mother, look at you, just you coming next time because it seems like your husband and your son don't have a problem with any of this. Less than a year after that, I was asked to emcee the Pride Festival in my hometown. And I came home, stayed at my parents' home, didn't, you know, make a big deal about what I was doing. I just, you know, I'm going to do a show, sort of the polite Southern euphemism for I'm going to go cross-dress and lip-sync and make money. And I go to the Pride Festival and I walk out on stage to do the opening number of the festival. I look out and my mom is sitting front and center in the audience. Well, I walk backstage and one of my friends was backstage waiting to be the next speaker and she said, are you okay? And I said, yeah, I think so. I said, the only thing that could make today any more awkward is if she shows up backstage and my friend Tracy looks over my shoulder, looks back at me and says, well, get ready because here she comes. And my mother was walking towards me backstage and she um, stretched her arms out towards me and she said, hello, gorgeous. And she hugged me and she said, I'm so proud of you. Thank you for coming to PT's 1109 in Columbia tonight. And as we say with my two big old balloon titties, because these are balloons, these are not real girls, tatas. You know, one downside to doing what I do is the fact that it's very solitary. Like, I'll leave here tonight, and you know, maybe there'll be a, another customer who's in the service industry who keeps the same hours that I do. So we might go you know, to an all-night breakfast place and grab coffee or something to eat. But who knows, maybe one of these days somebody will catch my eye and I'll take the makeup off real fast to get back out into the audience. All right, that's our show. It is credits time. Producers. Matt Collette and Alice Wilder. Intern. Melissa Lent. Sound designer. Jeremy Bloom. Editor. Jenny Lawton. Executive producer. Paula Schumann. I'm Kathy Tu. I'm Tobin Lowe. And Nancy is a production of WNYC Studios. So, Kath, I have written you as a little bit of a, a little bit of a sarcastic foil, but it doesn't okay. have to be full. I know my role. I know my role. <laughs> I play this one well. <laughs> I can... I'm just saying it doesn't have to be full on like Tobin. <laughs> it's just gently. Yeah, yeah, I got it. I got it. <laughs>